Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. How's everyone doing? I hope that everyone in the middle of the country and those affected by the storms and people in Texas in particular are getting warm, getting water, getting fed, and um, staying safe. I've been thinking about you guys a lot, and I know that I have a lot of listeners in the affected areas, so I'm sending you all my love. God damn, what a shit show, huh? One thing after another. So uh, we're going to continue on with our mini-series on abuse uh, today, and we're going to be talking about financial abuse. I brought on with me Lily Vasilev. She is a fee-only certified financial planner. She's master analyst in financial forensics. Um, so you know when you hire a forensics a forensic accountant, that's what we're talking about. She specializes in matrimonial litigation, certified divorce financial analyst, and she's the president of wealth protection management based in Greenwich, Connecticut. She's a trained mediator, collaborative financial specialist, and qualified litigation expert. She trains divorce professionals in the collaborative process and presents on financial topics regularly at the New York City Bar Association. Uh, She's a nationally recognized expert practitioner, speaker, writer, and author of three books. These books are really cool, you guys. Money and Divorce, The Essential Roadmap to Mastering Financial Decisions published by the American Bar Association, and The Ultimate Divorce Organizer, The Complete Interactive Guide to Achieving the Best Legal, Financial, and Personal Divorce, and The Divorce Planner Checklist, which I think everybody needs to get. (laughs) When I was on the hunt for someone to have a conversation about financial abuse, Uh, My dear friend, Susan Guthrie, recommended Lily, and uh, she was the perfect person to have this conversation. So, you know, look, even if you don't think you're being financially abused, I think this is an important conversation for everyone. Everyone needs to understand, first of all, what financial abuse even is and looks like. Everyone needs to understand the complexities involved with it and Everyone needs to know what to look out for. And this is, you know, this is, while it's a conversation about financial abuse, it's also a conversation about financial empowerment and how disempowered so many women are and become around their finances when they get married, whether they're in an abusive situation or not. So many of us just sort of, you know, sort of take our hands off the wheel And it's really, really disempowering. And as you'll hear, can also be super dangerous. And of course, this is part of the reason that we have started the Thrive Fund 
here at the Divorce Survival Guide. Look for that link in the show notes as well so that, you know, you can help women who have been financially disempowered in their marriages. Super, super, super important. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Lily Vasilev. Lily, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this really important and sort of insidious topic of financial abuse. It is indeed. And it's one of those dark corners that few people go into with their eyes open. And when you're already there, you don't even know it. So I am delighted to talk today about financial abuse and financial infidelity. Mm -hmm. Very different and often not recognized by anyone. Yeah, let's start there. What's the difference? Well, the difference is sort of various degrees of shade, right? On a spectrum. So you can have financial infidelity that at the beginning of a midpoint here of a spectrum of not welcome financial behavior, meaning that financial infidelity includes both secretive acts as well as behaviors that are different from the past and they result in keeping financial secrets. So infidelity could start very mildly and it could be something as easy as paying for someone else's vacation, making gifts to somebody. Financial infidelity could be buying a pair of shoes that you tell your spouse are on sale and they're really not. It could be as serious, perhaps, as an addiction or a gambling problem. So even within the term of financial infidelity, there's a wide range of secrets and behaviors that impact, most importantly, the intimacy of a relationship because trust becomes broken. And so the impact of that secret, the impact of that behavior really turns the tide on communication, trust, and an openness of working together. And it creates that sort of fissure that really pulls people apart. And we know, you and I both know as professionals in this business, that money is the number one argument in the most marriages and the first predicator of divorce. So this is talking right to that point, financial infidelity in money relationships. Yeah. I love the way you put that, that it's really about the breakdown of trust, right? So whether you're hiding, paying for someone's uh, hotel or like apartment, like, you know, it's an extension of other forms of infidelity, or you're just not being honest with the finances, with what you're doing with money. And that, that is a spec, that is definitely a spectrum. So what is financial abuse? And I I'm sure it's just as much of a spectrum, right? It is, but it's much darker. Financial abuse is actually the exertion of power, control, and manipulation to the detriment of a person. So you are negatively impacting them in any number of ways. It usually occurs in romantic relationships. And the most significant and most publicized form that we see is elder abuse whereby literally somebody takes control over all of your financial identity, independence, 
management, and ability to access financial resources so that you are isolated. And what I found staggering in this research that I did about financial abuse is that one in six persons experience it. And more than that, one in three don't even recognize it for what it is, and they suffer in silence. And I would say that 99% of domestic violence cases include financial abuse. So it's the flip side of that coin. It's a dark place to be, and it's not an easy one to get out of. And it happens subtly, and it happens over time gradually. Absolutely. You know, last week on the podcast, we talked to my friend Leslie Morgan Steiner about domestic violence. And this was a piece of her story, the financial, the financial abuse, the the manipulation, the, you know, it's part of an isolating tactic, right? For domestic violence relies upon isolation. And part of that is dominance and control over finances to facilitate the isolation. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about instances where you're asked to steal from your own family, that you're forced to sign loan documents or credit card applications that don't benefit you at all, that you may be prohibited from going to work to earn your own living. It's everything designed to cripple your your independence and your self-sufficiency. Yes. And, you know, like every other form of abuse, like you say, it's about dominance and control right? Sexual abuse is not about sex. It's about dominance and control. Domestic violence is not about physical violence. It's about dominance and control. So how common is this? Well, if we're talking about financial infidelity, which is the lesser of the two evils here, I would say it's really common. I mean, I've been reading these surveys that are so interesting to me, where it says 57% of all married couples have kept some money secret at some point in time from their spouse, whether it's hiding a price tag, whether it's getting a new credit card for a store, whether it's going out and paying a lot for a golf outing that you didn't want to share with the other partner about it. And they aren't necessarily terrible. I think what happens in financial infidelity situations is that it's really um, a little bit different than abuse because it's not meant to cripple another person and control them. It happens because there's a perceived opportunity. You know, something just allows that person to say, huh, I wonder if I could do that. And the flip side of that is that they're easily able to rationalize why they can do it. Mm-hmm. So for example, I'd give you a great story of a client of mine who said, you know, I used to let my boyfriend take my debit card and he would go buy groceries for me and he would go put my car, you know, the gas in my car. And it was wonderful. And I gave him all my passwords and it was just such a lovely act of support to make my life easier. Come to find out her bank accounts were cleaned out after three months and that everything was gone and there's no retrieving it. They hadn't, I mean, they weren't married. They weren't, they're in a romantic relationship. So the idea that you can just do what you need to do because there's a reason that justifies it for you is really at the heart of it. And if you don't notice the red flags in time, there's little you can do except look back and go, wow, how did I get so far out here? Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So financial 
but financial abuse itself. So how, I mean, yeah, financial infidelity. I mean, I think even in my marriage where money was not one of our sticking points necessarily, you know, I, I do remember like a couple of times where I like loaned money to a friend without telling him. Cause I was like, he's not going to, he's not going to probably approve this. We can afford it. It's not a big deal. And she, you know, my friend needed, my friend was like really desperate. So I was like, I'm just going to handle this. And I didn't tell him and like, no big deal. Right. And I could justify that again by being like, eh, no big deal. So that's, I can see how, fi- how financial infidelity can be really common. I know friends who go buy, go shopping. They don't tell their husbands like whatever, but fi- how common is financial abuse? I think it's less common But then again, many of these individuals who suffer from domestic violence and suffer from these kinds of really significant financial abuse suffer in silence. And one of the interesting research pieces I read about this is that even when they are suffering, they don't recognize it as financial abuse. They've been conditioned and they've been manipulated for so long. And it's been such a long lasting, gradual climb to this dark place that very few people recognize when they're there or how it happened, how to get out of it. Yeah. What are some ways, you know, besides, I think in domestic violence, that's like an extreme that you and I could look at and be like, yeah, that's abuse, right? And and in the episode with Leslie last week, we had a conversation about how even, even victims of domestic violence, while she is literally having a gun held to her head and being beaten, she still was like, oh, no, it's not domestic violence, right? And I hear that. It's so common. What are some other ways besides the most like overt and extreme ways that financial abuse, what are some other ways that, that, that it looks? Well, Okay, so here are some really interesting ways that it happens. Let's mm-hmm. do it that way. Maybe that's okay. They, the manipulator can, for example, ask you for all of your account passwords, all of the access to your accounts, and then close you out, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They can overuse your credit cards. They can withhold physical resources from you, like food or shelter or access to your own children. They can force you to cash in certain checks, like social security checks or any checks that come from the government so that they benefit from them, even from medical reimbursement. They can force you to sign powers of attorney to turn over your estate documents as well as your signing authority on documents. They can forge things in your name. They can sell property that was yours. They can fake false insurance claims for you. And they can withhold any kind of support that might be owed to you, like maintenance, alimony, or child support to force you to do something else. Now, that is a very, very high degree of financial abuse. Lesser than that is where you're not seeing routinely what's happening in your financial life, such that they might change where the mail goes. They might open credit cards and put your name on them, and you have no idea what's happening to your credit rating. They could steal your identity, your credit identity. They could sign you on to long-term leases or debts that you won't see unless you run credit reports in your own name, which in all honesty, a lot of us don't do that regularly, which we should. So 
the, the lesser signs of, you know, just sort of what you should be aware of probably would be like if there's unexplained changes in behavior. Like if all of a sudden somebody is being incredibly generous with gifts and then just the opposite, wants to know where every penny is being accounted for. If they're concealing details from any kind of transactions that you ask about, like how did we refinance our house? What happened there? Or they spend a lot of time on their computer <laughs> and shut it down the minute you come by and you're asking what's going on. Oh, I'm working on our numbers. Like, can I see them? No. Mm. So there are more subtle red flags. And then there are the very extreme ones that you're talking about, like when yeah. holding a gun in your head and, you know, that's really clear. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, you know, the things that I hear a lot in my Facebook group are things like, or from my clients are things like, you know, he took my stimulus check. Yeah. And he said that, that, you know, it needed to go towards this that I don't know anything about, or this is one I hear a lot, right. From stay-at-home moms. He gives me an allowance. Oh yeah. Like you're a child, yeah. you know, so you have no financial control whatsoever, but you're given a limited amount of money, which is usually by the way, not enough money. And you know, you're told to make it work, <laughs> make whatever work with that money, right? Exactly. In part, this all starts with, I think, the lack of financial literacy. Yes. In for general, women. Mm-hmm. For women in particular. Yep. And I think there's also the idea that if you've been earning a living, if you've been in the workforce, if you've had some experience with investments, that you then delegate that role as the main person for doing it. And he has his role. I have my role. I'm raising the children. And I'm assuming he's doing a good job in providing for us. So many times in a divorce process, this comes to a head and all of those gaps in communication of what was done, how it was done, when it was done, why wasn't it done, hit the fan. And people are more shocked by what occurred during the marriage than the fact that they're actually sitting there now getting a divorce. And it comes down to the fact that people aren't communicating well, being curious, knowing that it's their responsibility to know what's going on. You don't delegate that. You don't delegate accountability for your financial security, and your well-being to anyone. You will never be safe that way. How can you, how can you set yourself up to not like at the beginning of a relationship, right? So let's say you're in this now and you're getting divorced is, you know, that's our, that's our arena here. How can you avoid this in any new relationship? I, I think it's important to set aside a schedule for when you talk about common goals and how you work toward common goals. And it opens the door for communicating about how much you should be saving toward them, what your spending should be in the interim. If unexpected emergencies happen, how will they be funded, from where, and in what sequence? So if you set up a positive environment for routinely, and I mean regularly and routinely, talking about financial planning and events and happiness and you know what we want to get from this, that's a much more favorable tone, number one. Number two, always change your passwords. Make sure that you are always checking access to your own financial accounts and to your own financial debts. Don't ever 
co-sign or co-guarantee anything that you do not know what it is for, who is using it, or how you will be held liable for it. Mm -hmm. Third one is know the laws in your state because there are community property laws. There are equitable distribution laws. There are state divorce laws. And knowing your liability under those laws, if you eventually go into a divorce, is paramount for you to understand what you're going to be responsible for. Whether or not you incurred the debt, whether or not you spent the money, right? Free credit reports are great. Um, You need to protect you at all points in time. And, you know, I did, I, I always am challenged with the question, well, should I have some money held separately in my name or do I have to always have joint accounts and commingle? Personally, I think holding an individual account in your own name, a small savings account, a brokerage account, whatever it is, really gives you a sense of your own self, financially speaking, that you have something you've created and you're managing going forward. You can have other joint accounts. It's great. As long as everybody knows what everything is and there's a certain degree of transparency to it, I don't see an issue with it. And I think it's important for somebody and everybody actually to have an independent account. And that's not a secret account, right? Because if it was a secret account, that would be financial infidelity, right? So it's, it's not a secret. It's just your own. Exactly. And, and I'll give you a great example. So I, I'm working with this couple in divorce, and they're very high net worth couple. And it came down to the non-working spouse, the wife, who agreed to divide everything except for her own IRA account. And her own IRA account was very small, a couple thousand dollars. And we're talking about a multi-million dollar estate. Mm-hmm. And everyone thought that was very funny. And I said, I get it. I understand why. She created it when she had her career and it meant something to her as her identity. And the minute we said that and put it on the table, I was like, oh, okay, sure. It it was that significant. It didn't matter what the value was. And the value was negligible to him, but everything to her. Exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what do we do if you find yourself in this situation, in a financially abusive situation, even if you're not, if, if you're thinking about getting divorced and you're, and you're realizing, you know, this is what I, I see all the time. I see women who want to get divorced, but have been so completely disempowered and abused and controlled and manipulated that they don't have the resources to get out, or they don't think that they do, or they they just feel so disempowered that that's the reason they're staying. How do women, and it's mostly women, you know, my audience is women. I'm sure financial abuse happens the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. But how do how do people get out from under this and allow themselves the freedom on the other side or find freedom on the other side? It is a great question. If you don't have financial resources as a family, meaning he controls them. There are many organizations that reach out to women to help them go through this transition, to break apart and then to disentangle themselves financially. The real tr- trick is if there are substantial resources in this household, meaning the husband has a lot of money and he's not giving her one dime to hire 
an attorney, a divorce financial planner, a coach, anyone, it's really difficult for her to then secure any kind of legal aid, if not impossible, or to hire any professional without money. And it's almost tragic. I mean, I've, went, I've gone through this with many people and it's pretty tragic. So you have to borrow. You have to take out a credit line in your own name if you still have that capacity to do so. And it's not a slam dunk where attorneys run to the court and say, hey, I need to get some money for this woman and fees in place so that we can start this. It's just right. not. Right. Yeah. So it, it's yeah. really, um, it's it's a big challenge. It's a yeah. challenge for people to afford the divorce piece of it if you've got no direct claim or access to any kind of monies. And what about situations where there's not necessarily a ton of money, right? But it's, you know, it's not necessarily a high net worth situation, but there's just, but there is this disparity and this complete, I mean, is legal aid a, an option because for, so what you're saying is legal aid is not an option because there is money, right? Right. And so they don't really qualify for the legal aid. Sadly. Right. Sadly, because it's not actually, they have no power and control over that money. Right. Right. Which is just so, ugh. yeah. There are, there are alternative dispute resolution processes. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have to run to litigation. So there's mediation, which is the lowest cost out of all the uh, legal processes. There's also collaborative divorce. And now there's a streamlined collaborative divorce, which is for the lower income families so that they can get divorced more holistically and more amicably with a plan for their future with the lowest cost possible and yet be serviced by the specialists who are most important in this divorce process, such as a lawyer, a divorce financial specialist, and a mental health professional. And so I think the process of getting divorced is now evolving and it's addressing many different kinds of economic sectors in our in our economy. It's coming because of grassroots interest that's pushing people to say, why is divorce so expensive? You know, why does it have to be this much for this long? And we get so much less at the end of the process. And so people, I hope, want a greater piece and part of the decision-making so that they can control their futures. That's what it's all about. So this conversation about financial infidelity and a financial abuse is for those individuals to recognize and hope that once they are in these situations, that there are remedies out there, that they can then really create a better future for themselves. And are there organizations out there willing to teach, help, and support them to get back into a career, to learn how to budget, to learn how to invest, to learn how to even go through a divorce? Absolutely. Seek out those resources. Because being in a situation where you see red flags, for example, in financial infidelity, the longer that happens, the longer you just tolerate it, the more frequent it becomes and the more damaging for you in the longer term. One of the studies shows that if you've been a victim of financial abuse, it takes between five and seven years to recover financially your identity, your credit, you know, get out of debt, that they are overwhelmed with the negative impact. 
So it has a bad yeah. tail. I, 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 I agree. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation, right? Because I think it's one of the lesser understood forms of abuse because it's just money, right? But when it's your credit, when it is your financial standing, and, and I think the financial literacy piece is so important. I have a dear friend, Amanda Steinberg, who wrote a book called Worthy. No, Worth It. And it's about essentially about financial literacy for women, right? Because we are, because it's all in very masculine terms that they make it, it's a very sort of, you know, it's a, it's a boy's game, right? And there are organizations that are helping to combat this by creating financial literacy that's sort of in language and about and investment strategies that are, that are for women so that we actually have a better understanding and are more empowered around our money. You know, it's so great you said that. Happy to hear that. It's exactly why I wrote my book, Money and Divorce. I was invited by the American Bar Association to write a step-by-step, plain English, financial issues and divorce. What do you do when it crosses your mind as the shadow that you might be going into divorce? And then from there, it just lays it all out. Tips, the pros, the cons, against. And it's done exactly that way. So that you understand all the options and you can sit there and go, ah, now I know. Maybe I like column A rather than column B. Now I get it. Now I understand where the other side's coming from, right? Right. And so it's really important that someone prepares. And when you have a situation where you think you might be working with somebody who's been unfaithful to you, financially speaking, there's more to it than that. And it's going to keep going on until you actually stop it yourself. And those are the telltale signs, the red flags of what's happening, those are in my book too, because Mm -hmm. those are so often found in these divorce cases. It's just so common. It's so common. Yeah. What are some telltale? So we talked about that a little bit, like, you know, closing the, closing the computer and not being allowed access to the, or the power, or here's one I hear a lot. He won't give me the passwords to our bank accounts. I don't know. I don't have the passwords. I can't log in and he won't give them to me. Yep. Huge Um, red flag. I mean, so we talked about financial infidelity being keeping secrets and then changes in behavior. Those are the two Your antenna should be sticking straight up, right? Mm -hmm. So changes in behavior, anything that is different now than it used to be, meaning he thinks going into debt is great because it's so low cost. Why why are we getting all this debt? Like what's going on? Where is it going, right? Having mail sent to the office instead of coming to you, changing the passwords, suddenly deciding that uh, you have to go on a budget and he wants to know every penny that you've been spending or conversely. He suddenly comes home and says, you know what? Let's go on three big vacations this year. Well, not COVID-19, but blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Another year. (laughs) Catches you by surprise. Like, why are you so lavishly spending? And then he flips the minute it's done. Like, is he buying your goodwill for something? Or he argues all the time. Like, all of a sudden, the economy is terrible. My business is going down the tubes. I won't get any bonus this year. My paycheck's going to be cut. I'm at risk of being unemployed. And this has never happened before. Of course, it could be possible with COVID-19. We just don't know. But all the negative means, what is he setting you up for? Mm-hmm. Low expectations, right? Low expectations mm-hmm. that there's something there when the shoe drops and divorce is filed. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so there's a uh, lot right. of I see. a lot of pieces yes. on the behavior side, right? Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's so much. And so what are the effects of this? Uh, I mean, 
on women, really, I think for the most part, I mean, or, or any, any victim, but I think my guess is it negatively impacts women far. I mean, first of all, I think it happens to women more yes. frequently, but also I think the, the effect and the impact on women long-term is probably more devastating than for men. As, as we were talking about before, it's more devastating for a lot of different reasons. For the women who have really endured financial abuse, they have been so isolated and so dependent and so controlled for so long that not only are they looking at something that's economically a challenge, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's physical to break through this. And that's why these help organizations are so critical for that support of helping launch themselves again. For women who have been in the workforce, came out of the workforce, and they lived a lovely lifestyle, but they were given an allowance to live on, to manage, and all of a sudden these behavior changes and secrets are coming about. And it's not financial abuse necessarily, but it's definitely financial infidelity, and it's created this lack of trust in a relationship. Those are the individuals that have a lot of anger. They have a lot of shame. They apologize for not recognizing it sooner, not being in control, being distracted of being a mom, being a great co-parent, being a good corporate wife, being this or that. And I think they are much more eager to regain their identities. Like they work a lot harder on it when they're divorced. You know, it's like, I didn't realize that happened to me. Wow, what a wake up call this is. And I get often the comment, I'm so sorry, I don't know what our finances are. I'm so sorry, I don't know where our bank accounts. I'm so sorry, I don't do this. I said, why are you sorry? You know, that's how it was and it will never be again because this is the moment where you are recreating a vision for your future. So that's a little bit different story. And maybe the impact isn't that long lasting because there are resources that they're dividing between them and there's a fresh start. It's just a question of whether they continue to hold themselves accountable for their own financial security. Right. And that's the most important thing to be able to, to, to take the lesson, right? You know, give yourself some grace and compassion and know that this, like, as you said, this is how it was. And now you get to make a choice for how it's going to be. What are some of these organizations? So you're, you're, you've mentioned that there are organizations out there to help. What Can you name some of them? or And we'll list them in the show notes too. Well, I don't want to list any. So Kate, okay. because there's a long list. But if you look up domestic violence, if you look up women's literacy programs, there's a whole bunch of them. And I didn't want to list them all because I felt like that would be like an infomercial, so to speak. So like even, where are you, where are you Kate? Do I'm you in California. Oh, okay. Never mind then. For some reason, I don't know why I thought it was here. But I mean, many universities. I'm from New York. I'm I'm from New York. So I I don't know. But many of these universities will have these kinds of groups specifically, specifically in their law schools that are set aside for helping disempowered women and or individuals of lower income. So it's kind of fun that way. But you can look it up on Google wherever you are. Yeah. Okay. And what should they be Googling sort of? Women's literacy programs, women's financial support groups, I would say financial abuse sources. Yeah, financial abuse recovery or whatever. Yep. Yep. Are there are there characteristics that define someone like this that is going to be a financial abuser? Is there something that you can sort of on a first date be like, aha? <laughs> like I laugh when you say that. 
because often we talked in the very beginning about there being differing degrees of how this is perpetuated upon it another person, right? So in one way, we're talking a little bit about a romantic predator and the romantic predator who commits financial infidelity is one who is intent on manipulating you with wonderful romantic fantasies because you're successful, you're smart, everything, except you have this big gap in your personal life and he comes and fills it in and exactly the way you want him to fill it in. And then he starts the game. And the game is literally, as I mentioned earlier with one of my clients, actually a couple of clients, where they seek to help you make your life easier. Let me go to the bank for you. Let me take your credit card and go shopping for you. Let me do this. Oh, and by the way, you know what? I have this big deal coming and my money's all tied up in stock. So can I take an advance against yours and then pay you back three times the amount? Oh, sure. And then they're gone in three months, right? There are so many blind spots we all have. We all have our blind spots. We want to believe that we want to be loved. We want to rely on somebody. We want somebody to help us and support us and make our life easier. I think you need to sit down and take this checklist, what we went through, but making sure you have your passwords, you change them often, keeping control over your own accounts, not signing things with other people until you know where the money is and what it's going for, not signing uh, debts, not giving away things that could financially boomerang against you. And when you have a checklist in front of you and somebody starts invading that checklist and your boundaries, that's your red, your red flags, right? Why are you asking me to do this when I feel uncomfortable? But if you don't have it in front of you, it's so easy to let it slip, right? One by one. I think that's such great advice, right? It's like when you're not in a relationship and you're writing down the list of things that you want in a man, right? which we all do, right? Liz, you know, even though people are like, don't make a list, it's silly. We all do. But to make a list of what a financially healthy relationship would look and feel like, right? Like, don't forget to make the list about finances. So it's not just that he brings me coffee in bed or he's, you know, funny or he does all these things, right? It's also so that you do actually have that list. So that you know when things are when th- when those boundaries are being crossed. Because if you don't if you don't think about it, you're not going to notice it. And if you aren't communicating about money, remember we were talking about when you sit down in a happy spot in a happy time to do happy conversations. If you do, if that doesn't happen, there's a very big void mm. of what's going on with the money. Yeah, and. Yeah. and it's a, it's sort of that come to Jesus moment where you sit there and you go, wow, how did I get out on this limb so far that I never yeah. saw it? Right. And it, it is. Yeah. And I think, I think so many of us don't have money conversations in relationships until we're really far in, right? Like it almost doesn't matter until we're going to get married or it almost doesn't matter until, you know, we are married But these are conversations that should probably happen sooner in a relationship than because it's, you know, it's, it's taboo. It's tacky. It's, it can be embarrassing. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, for example, if you were going out on a date and you knew that the other individual had far less financial resources than you, 
Do you talk about how you're going to pick up the tab every time you go out? Do you talk about when you go on vacation, will it be just you paying for it and knowing that that other person can't? And at the end of the day, do you feel generous? Do you feel taken advantage of? Do you feel like, I don't really want this to go on, but I don't know how to get out of it now? So it's the awakening of knowing what you want to commit to and what you won't accept in that financial relationship. And it's hard. It's not an easy process of sitting down with yourself and saying, you know, maybe I'm better off than that, than that person. And he makes me laugh and he brings me coffee in the morning and I feel loved and I'm happy with him. But how far does that go? If, if all my resources are taken up by that, is it just supporting another person? (laughs) Like a child? Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in some, in some cases, I remember having, I remember I was, I dated a man for a couple of years soon after my divorce and I, my business hadn't still building my business and I was financially strapped all the time and he was not, he, he had plenty. And I think that it also is a, unfortunately a gender issue, right? But he did not, he had plenty of money and he would always pay for us to go out to dinner. And early on, I said to him, like, listen, I don't want us to have to keep going out because I can't afford it. And I don't want you to keep picking up the tab. And he said, it literally means nothing to me. I want to go out to dinner. I want to take you out to dinner. He's like, I will, I am happy to pay. And it's just not an issue. And I tried to take him at his word because he, because he said that. And he took us on vacations. Every time we went out to dinner, he paid. It wasn't like we weren't, it wasn't lavish, but he did. He paid and he, and it was never an issue, right? Because we had the conversation super early on and there were plenty of other problems in that relationship, (laughs) but that wasn't one of them. And I never felt, I never felt a power imbalance because frankly, I think what's interesting about that relationship is that I never felt a power imbalance because he never wielded it in that way. I think it's I think you can have a relationship with someone if if they're honest about saying it's fine, right? Like if he said to me it's fine and then used that against me in some way or in an argument was like, well I already I always pay, then I'd be like, okay, obviously you're not fine with it. But it never came up. And I think that that's that was well, a, that's that was, the way to do it. Yeah. That was the one healthy thing about that. And it wasn't a closed, it wasn't a one-time only. I mean, if you ever had a question about that, like, for example, if you wanted to go on vacation that he didn't want to go on, but you wanted him to come, would he still pay for that? Right. That don't know, right? I don't know. I don't know. It didn't work that way. <laughs> but so so that's that's where it becomes a little bit more interesting to kind of push the envelope there to find yeah. out where those lines are drawn. But often people just don't even have that conversation. They don't even you know, say that. And, and what's funny about sort of the flip of that role, if it had been you mm-hmm. that had more resources than him, would you have been able to do that? Say, it doesn't matter to me. Right. I don't know. Right. I actually don't know. And it's a really good, it's a great question. And yeah, I don't know. And the other thing about it is that I didn't take advantage of it. Right. I wasn't a gold digger. I wasn't saying like, well, I want to go to Cabo. And like, why aren't you taking me to Cabo? Like, that's just not me. You know, he was, 
he was like, let's go to Palm Springs this weekend. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, I was just always grateful. Now that's an interesting term you just used gold digger. Right. Right away. You think of a woman. Yes. Of I have never thought of a man as being a gold digger. It's always a woman who's a gold digger. And yes. why is that? Because all these movies portray younger women with older men going only after the money. Cause how could they possibly be attracted to an older man? All right. So funny to say that, but when it's the woman who has the resources right. and the man who doesn't, it's a very interesting change in dynamic. And I see it when my clients who are very accomplished women have to pay alimony. It's like yeah. they are yeah. so resistant to this idea. Yeah. So resistant. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a very different dynamic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the gender, the gender spin on all of this is, is really, (laughs) is really important as is, I think in any, in any financially imbalanced relationship, communication about it and not taking advantage, right? Not taking it for granted is also important. And knowing your own sense of not just worth, but your sense of value in that relationship of how you need to be independent, accountable, and responsible for yourself. No matter what else happens, you come back to that. Yeah. Amen. Lily, thank you so much for coming to have this conversation. I just think it's such a, it's a real, there's a, there's so much, there's so much in it. <laughs> it's yeah. like um, a goldmine. Any last sort of parting words of wisdom for people about this? I, I would just say, check your blind spots. Make sure that there are no surprises and start the process of communicating. If you can, slowly, gently, positively, with good hopes for a good outcome so that you are not left in the dark and a victim and worse, heading toward divorce because of it. Yes. Amen. Thank you so much. Lily, where can people find you? You can find me on my website at wealth protectionmanagement.com. And my phone number is 203-622-4911. And I encourage you um, to pick up some of these books, which are literally step-by-step guides on the financial issues in both relationships, as well as the divorce process, which are on amazon.com. And I wish everyone financial health and security. Wonderful. And your book is Money and Divorce. Money and Divorce, The Essential Roadmap to Mastering Financial Decisions. Yes, I love it. Thank you so much, Lily. I so appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with us. It's really important. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.